You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is taken from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I mentioned, this month we're taking a break from our study in Hebrews. We will be back in Hebrews next week, so go ahead and bring those journals with you. But what we've been doing is focusing on a short vision series called Direction. Why is vision important? Vision brings the church into alignment. The Proverbs tell us that where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Without a unifying vision, We're going to grow discouraged. We're going to splinter off. We're always going to be asking, what the heck are we doing here? Without a unifying vision, we're going to get caught up in every whim, every good idea that comes around, which means that we're going to be constantly reacting to things, constantly making changes based on circumstances or individual people's concerns or even cultural issues, which is not really to be the posture of the church. So vision brings necessary clarity and direction. And as a shepherd, my responsibility is to offer you uh, leadership and guidance found on, or really found in God's word. To point you back to scripture and to say big, bold statements like this is God's will for your life. Listen to the words of the apostle Paul as he wrote to the Corinthian church. He said, Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. In other words, I know exactly where I'm running. I know exactly what fight I am in. Without vision, we become aimless, which means that when we don't know what fight we're supposed to be in, guess what ends up happening? We just start to fight each other. 
And when we don't know what race that we're in, guess what happens? We just start running from one another when things get difficult. We need direction for our lives. We need direction for our church. That's the vision behind this series. So being a disciple of Jesus involves three important directions for our lives, up in worship with God, in, in fellowship with other believers, and now finally, as we're gonna see today, out on mission in our cities and beyond for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. William Tyndale once said, the church is the one institution that exists for those outside of it. We're all probably part of an organization or something, but at the end of the day, it exists for itself. The church is different. The church serves its members, but it does not exist for us, but for those who are not here yet. Amen. All right. Title of this morning's message is Everyday Mission. Let's bring the mission of Jesus into our everyday. If you're taking notes, here's where we're going to begin the meaning of mission, the meaning of mission. When I was a young boy, I was not really clear what the word mission or missions meant. I had a bunch of competing ideas in my mind. Primarily, when I heard the word missions, because of my fourth grade assignment, I thought Spanish churches up and down the California coast connected by the El Camino Real. Anyone else grew up in California and in fourth grade had to do the missions project? No, this was a very coveted project, a long-awaited project where you were assigned a mission. I was assigned Mission San Rafael. And then you studied it and researched it. And if you're really fortunate, you got to go visit it. And then you had to write a paper on it. But here was the best part. You built a model of it. You remember the lasagna, like tile roofs for the, the mission? So in my mind, legitimately, missions were Spanish buildings up and down the California coast. Also... When I heard the word missions, I thought of like secret spy activity, right? Your mission, should you, should you choose to accept it, this message will self-destruct in five seconds. So I, I, this idea of missions, and maybe it feels as foreign as that to you. It wasn't until I began to study the life and ministry of Jesus in the scriptures that I realized the meaning of mission. Mission, our English word mission, comes from a Latin word, which is not a distinctly biblical language, but it comes from a Latin word, missio, which means a distinctly biblical word, sent. Mission means sent. And it's based on the commission that Jesus gives to his disciples after the resurrection when he appears to his disciples in John chapter 20 and says these famous words. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So think about the gravity of this statement. Jesus is saying, in the same way that the Father has sent me into this world, now I am sending you. That's at the heart of our mission. We are sent by Jesus. Tell me a little bit about yourself. I am sent by Jesus. Some of you all are gonna go update your LinkedIn profiles later today. Graduated here, worked here. Here's a sent by Jesus. Jesus. The whole book of the Bible, the whole storyline of scripture really is the mission of God to seek and save his people and to restore the world through Jesus Christ. God sent the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, into this world to proclaim and to embody the everlasting kingdom through healing lives, 
loving people, welcoming outcasts. Jesus died a sacrificial death in our place in order to forgive us of our sins, to remove the condemnation that was upon us and to reconcile us with God. He rose again victoriously on the third day to usher in life, eternity, and hope. He ascended to the right hand of the Father to be our forever priest and advocate. And as he promised, now here's the context of Acts chapter two, as he promised, he sent his long-awaited Holy Spirit to be with his people to empower us to now boldly and powerfully proclaim that same good news of the kingdom of God. This is the central mission of the church, and for the Christian, this is the central mission of your life. This is what life is about. Now think about it. We probably all work for or serve organizations that, whether you know it or not, has a mission statement. Businesses, nonprofits, uh, organizations, school districts, I'm sure, they all have vision, mission statements, why we exist and how we're going to carry this out. Here's our values, here's what we're all about, here's why we exist and here's why we deserve to be an organization. But very few of us see ourselves as having a mission statement. Very few of us probably have on our refrigerator, I exist to X, Y, Z. But we really need to reconsider this because if we are a believer, if you are a believer, if we have been born again through faith, we really do have a mission and vision. Now here's the good news. It is not up to you to creatively divine and cra uh, creatively uh, define rather and craft that mission statement. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to be creative. Take that burden off yourself. That has been defined for you. To be a disciple means to live with a mission to make Jesus known. What is this mission all about? To make Jesus known. Have you complicated that? Have you shoehorned all kinds of ideas into that and now sort of confused why you exist? You exist to make Jesus known. And so the church is God's primary instrument for this very clear mission to the world. As we see here in Acts, this wasn't something that people did alone. It wasn't like Pentecost, the spirit of God falls on, on his people and then everyone's like, okay, I'll see you later in like three months when we come back and report what we've been doing for Jesus. No, they did it together. That's the whole context here. The church is a community of sent ones, reality church is a community of sent ones. But tragically, what we have done in the Western church is we've separated these two things. For many of us, church is what we do here. I'm at church. And then missions is what a few brave people go do overseas. We do the church stuff, they do the mission stuff. That's the deal. And we'll send them money just because they're there and we don't wanna be there. And we'll pray for you, we'll pray blessings over you, but really we're just glad you're doing it, not us. We do the church stuff, they do the mission stuff. But pay attention to what's happening here in the, in the early church in the book of Acts, starting in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and listen to this line, and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
The earliest Christians did not regard missions or evangelism as a special event, as a programmed activity, as something done sort of way out there. It was a part of their everyday rhythms woven into the ordinary stuff of life like eating a meal. Now, don't get me wrong, we need to honor those who sacrificially sell all they have, put it all on the line to go to remote portions of the world to make Christ known where he's never been preached. Like the world is not worthy of those individuals, legit. And we wanna honor those people. But what we see here in Acts 2 is that being a Christian and being a missionary are one in the same. So you can be a missionary without being a Christian. You cannot be a Christian without being a missionary. And you don't have to, here's the good news, you don't have to leave your current life to be sent out. You just simply have to devote the life that you've been given and redirect it all towards the mission of Jesus Christ. You may be here and say, I don't have a lot to give. I'm sure the little boy at that famous sermon that Jesus was preaching was thinking the same thing as Jesus fed the 5,000. This is really about saying, Jesus, this is the limited stuff I have. Here it is. I put it in service of your gospel and allow Jesus to bring abundance from it. I'm not smart enough. Maybe you're not. (laughs) I don't have a lot of intelligence. I'm not going to lie to you. Maybe you don't. But it's taking what you do have and putting it in service of Jesus. Maybe you're broke. And I'm not going to be like, oh, well, compared to 90% of the globe, you're actually really rich. Maybe you are broke. But it's putting what you do have in service of the mission of Jesus Christ. Mission is not a scheduled activity. It's a way of life that every single person here is capable of. You guys still with me? The method. Secondly, the method for mission. In other words, how the church carries out the mission. So maybe we have a lot of questions now. How is this done? Is there a special formula? Is there a process that we need to carry out? What does it look like? How do we do it? I love the concept of a napkin pitch. I don't know why. I've always been obsessed with this idea. Is essentially taking and consolidating a very brilliant idea in a very simple statement. And it's, it's kind of cocky, right? Like, here's my idea. I'm going to slide it across the table. And you're like, this is going to change the world, man. For instance, the idea for Shark Week on Discovery Channel, life-changing stuff here, guys, was, was originally drafted on a napkin. Or the idea for Oprah Winfrey's media empire, word has it, Robert Epert wrote it down on a cocktail napkin. And, speculation here, but word has it that the first draft of the Gettysburg Address was written on a napkin. Great ideas start on little napkins. So, here's the deal. I'm not starting any media empires or changing the tide of American freedom. I promise you that. But I do have my own napkin pitch idea. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you heard it. Maybe you're sick of it by now. But here it is. It should be projected here in just a second. The idea is this. Outreach does not necessarily equal programs. So depending on your church background, you're like, whoa, or you're like, no, okay, whatever. So reality has a number of people from different church backgrounds where large budgets would move towards programs 
that facilitate outreach to the community. Large sums of money would be allocated for large groups of people to then kind of move into concentrated certain areas. Maybe it was like an annual Saturday morning clean up a park in South Stockton, or maybe it was a once a year homeless ministry outreach where we invest all of this time, energy, and resources into one pinnacle day where we are gonna change Stockton forever. Now, I'm tipping my cards how I feel about that, but I don't want to dishon, like I'm not trying to dishonor what God is doing in other churches, and I guarantee you that there have been lives impacted by these, these efforts. So don't hear me wrong. But I'm asked all the time, what is reality's approach to outreach? And I know what's being asked. I know the question beneath the question, and the question is this, what programs exist here? What, what is our outreach strategy is really, what are the programs? And so I have to be really honest about this. Outreach does not equal programs. And outreach does not require programs. If you're waiting for reality to be a program-heavy church, you are going to be waiting a very long time. Jesus did not tell his first believers to go therefore and form programs in all of the nations. We're told in Matthew chapter 28, it's actually quite simple. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What does that mean? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is this all about? It's about making disciples through baptizing new believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to orient their lives around the lives and teaching the life and teachings of Jesus. It's actually quite simple. In fact, it's this simple. Tim Chester put it this way. Jesus didn't run projects, establish ministries, create programs, or put on events. He ate meals. He ate. If you routinely share meals and you have a passion for Jesus, then you'll be doing mission. Maybe you're on mission and you didn't even know it. You're like, I like food. I like Jesus. Yeah. It's not that meals save people. People are saved through the gospel message, but meals will create natural opportunities to share that message in a context that resonates powerfully with what you're saying. You study the life and ministry of Jesus, specifically in the Gospel of Luke, and what you're going to find is that the table was Jesus' primary method for reaching people. How did Jesus reach so many people? Through meals. And I believe that the same is true for us today. Meals bring the mission of Jesus into the ordinary stuff of life. There was a letter from the second century one disciple writing to another individual who was considering converting to Christianity. The individual's name was Methodus, and he was writing this compelling vision about how Christians live differently in the world during the second century. And he's talking about, you know, they live in their own countries, but as sojourners. They're invested in the needs of the people, but it's clear that they're citizens of somewhere else. And they marry just like everyone else, and they have children, but, quote, they don't destroy their offspring. 
So they live differently. And then he says this final statement, which is not going to sound very shocking to us, but would have been shocking in the second century. He says, they have a common table, but not a common bed. And you're like, I thought that was like an obvious thing. But in a time where it would have been very common to give anyone and everyone your body and very common to be very guarded about your table, the church was actually doing something differently. Think about it this way. Shame wouldn't come from the person that you slept with. Shame would come from, oh my gosh, they were over at my dinner table last night. What What was I doing? Like that shameful call to your mom to confess what you just did. You won't even believe who I had for dinner last night. The rich would never dine with the poor. Jews would never dine with Gentiles. And yet the church was doing the very opposite. They were conservative with their bodies, giving it only to their spouses in covenant, and then extremely liberal for who they were sharing meals with. Anyone can come. Anyone can sit down at this table. And so historically, one of the driving forces behind the rapid spread of Christianity was the surprising inclusion that the church offered. Anyone can come to the table. And it continued throughout church history. Hospitality was at the heart of mission for the church, especially at times where there were no hotels or hostels or homeless shelters or restaurants or grocery stores or anywhere you could go to get your basic needs. You actually see this sort of hinted in one of the scenes in Les Mis where Jean Valjean just like shows up at the Catholic church and it's expected that he's going to be able to stay there. And this is actually a historically rooted idea. In the rule of St. Benedict from the 6th century, there were actual clearly defined instructions for those who were pursuing the monastic lifestyle, how they were expected to welcome unexpected guests. And it begins like this. All guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ, for he himself will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. So essentially, you should assume that it's as if Jesus is walking in that door every time you see a new face. Because he will one day tell you, you welcomed me or you didn't. And then there were clear instructions about not showing partiality. Doesn't matter who they are, offer them water to clean themselves, whatever their needs may be, make sure that their present needs are met. And then, I love this, there were specific instructions for unexpected guests that show up hungry. If they showed up hungry, not only do you feed them, you eat with them. And it didn't matter, this is the monastics, right? It didn't matter if you were fasting, you ate with them. You could be be day 39 of a 40-day fast. You're like, I'm almost there. And a hungry person comes in the door and it's like, no, no, break the fast, man. It's over. And here's the principle beneath it. Hospitality towards others is more important than expressions of personal piety for yourself. Hospitality trumps it all. And so Acts describes that as the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayers, quote 43, and awe came upon every soul. This was the result, awe. The community was caught off guard. They were shocked by the way 
they saw God's people coming together. So Christians should be shocking to the world just for the right stuff. I think we're shocking all the time. I think we're just shocking for the wrong stuff. But it should shock the world. What is going on in there? What are they doing? Because the scarred and the marginalized and the broken and the religious outcasts, all of them are being welcomed to belong. People of different cultures, people of different ethnicities, they're eating together. What is this? The community was scandalized. And as God's people looked around the table, they began to see their divisions and their barriers being leveled as if they were staring into the very glory of God in their midst. So don't overlook this. Quiet, unassuming meals can become bold and brilliant displays of heaven on earth. Where do we see the glory of God breaking into the mundane of our lives? At the table. So ordinary, it's just like, oh no. I want to read a, probably the longest quote I've ever read in a sermon, honestly, so brace yourself. It says this, it's good to be reminded that the, that the table is a very ordinary place, a place so routine and every day, it's easily overlooked as a place of ministry. You wouldn't even think of it that. And this business of hospitality that lies at the heart of Christian mission, it's a very ordinary thing. It's not rocket science, nor is it terribly glamorous. Yet it's the very ordinariness of the table and of the ministry we exercise there that renders these elements of Christian life so important to the mission of the church. He goes on to say this, most of what you do as a community of hospitality will go unnoticed and unrecognized. At base, hospitality is about providing a space for God's spirit to move. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation. Providing a context in which people feel loved and welcome and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Hospitality is very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness, is its real worth. The fact that we wouldn't even just like think of the table as a place of mission is what makes it so special. Meals create platforms for gospel opportunities. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna urge you to put your table in service of God's mission this year, to be very intentional about the table as a place of facilitation where the spirit of God will move in people's lives and in people's heart. Plan to have unbelieving friends, acquaintances, neighbors, coworkers, and maybe even strangers over for a meal. Facilitate a space where others can hear about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and specifically the welcome that Jesus offers them to come through faith. Third and finally, if you're taking notes, the motivation for mission. There's something vital in this passage that we see here, especially for those of us who right now feel overwhelmed, maybe a little bit guilty. Maybe you're thinking about like, man, most of my time around the table is about me. For those of us who feel overwhelmed, 
uh, guilty, maybe just like incompetent, like I have no idea what I'm doing. Maybe you're insecure about your house or your setting or your ability to cook or your ability to wash dishes. It's actually found in the exchange between this, these, these crowds and the apostle Peter. It's found in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, the, the message that Peter was preaching, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? By the way, this is sort of the natural default for us when it comes to the things of God. We often think, what must we do? We think Christianity, we think faith, we even think the mission itself is primarily what we do instead of it being primarily something that God has done and now God does through his people. It's kind of the wrong question. What do we need to do? Mm, what does God desire to do through you? Verse, 40, uh, verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here's the emphasis. It's on receive. Track with me here. It's not what we do that saves. It's what we receive through faith. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in Ephesians chapter two, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. You weren't saved in your own strength. How do you think you're gonna save someone else in that same strength? It's simply offering what we have freely received. Even the act of baptism. I know that I'm going like a million miles an hour here, but even think about the act of baptism. Think about the last baptism we had here. There's a distinct feature of baptism. And it's this, that you were not baptized on your own. No one baptizes themselves. They, they are baptized by the hands of another. And what this is symbolic of is that I didn't save myself. My, my salvation doesn't rest in my own hands. It rests in the hands of God. I didn't save myself. I didn't baptize myself. I received now, yes, we must respond in faith. We must follow Jesus, but it's ultimately God who calls us to himself. And it's God who awakens and empowers us to come. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna introduce you to a theological term here, and it's effectual calling. If you're taking notes, go ahead and draw, or write that in your notes. Effectual calling. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines effectual calling like this. Effectual calling is the work of God's spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ who is freely offered to us in the gospel. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is recognizing that you were dead in your trespasses and sins and could never choose to follow Jesus if it wasn't first Jesus awakening you by his spirit. You wouldn't come unless God first called you to come. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Years ago, I read a story about a minister in Korea in the early 1900s. It was around the time of the Korean revival. And he ministered in a neighborhood and a village where there were a number of prostitutes there. And for years, he was actually really faithful to try to include them in the rhythms of the church and welcome them to come and and even at times to tell them about Jesus. But he said a lot of his communication to them matched what he had heard among Western evangelicals and contemporaries at the time. A lot of language like this, give your life to God, choose to follow Jesus, surrender your life to him, And no one was responding favorably. It wasn't until afterwards he realized that they were actually very discouraged by this message. In fact, they were very overwhelmed by this idea of like bringing themselves to Jesus. They felt incapable of it, especially in their current state. They felt unworthy because of their lifestyle. They thought the journey to Jesus was just going to be too difficult And so what he did was he changed his communication and he preached the gospel. And he told them about the sovereign grace of God, not about what they needed to do to get to God, but the good news of what God has done to get to them. That it's the Lord that initiates, that it's the Lord that calls his people to himself. Just like Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, it's not that you chose me, but I chose and pointed you He told them the good news that God chooses to save, not based on someone's history or virtue or effort or readiness to receive or ability to get themselves to Jesus, but according to his gracious will and according to his, his decision. And so they asked a really important question. Well, how do we know he's choosing us? And he responded, if you hear this message, and you receive it, and you believe. It is a sure sign that the Holy Spirit is at work within you, and God is calling you to himself. You couldn't even muster up the care to respond on your own. Even an ounce, even an ounce of a desire to pursue Jesus is first and foremost his grace and his pursuit of you and they responded and they believed and their lives were changed so back to our question what motivates us to be on mission it's not our public speaking skills it's not our depth of theological knowledge it's not the quality of our testimonies it's not our ability to convince people to trust and follow Jesus. The motivation at the end of the day is that it's God who saves. And yes, we participate. And yes, we have a message that must be proclaimed and believed, but it's God's grace alone through the finished work of of Jesus Christ and now through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. God alone can open the eyes of the blind. God alone can awaken dead souls to him. God alone can open up the ears of the deaf. God alone is able to save and to call people into a renewed life with him. And God alone is able to do what we read here in Acts. And day by day, Those who were being saved were added to their number. 
That's not the work of the church. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. We just get to participate. So here's what I want to do. This is my application. Take a deep breath. Like just take a big, giant, spirit-filled, deep breath. And take the burden off yourself. And what I want to invite you to do is just to begin to pray. Pray. Pray that God would consecrate your life for his purposes. Pray that God would strengthen your ministry of facilitation. That God would give you a heart to create spaces where the spirit moves in people's lives. Pray for open hearts. You cannot convince someone to follow Jesus. Only God can do that. So pray for open hearts. Pray that people would respond in faith to what God does through you, through your life, through your words, through your table. There's a hymn that we're gonna sing in just a minute. I wanna close with just reading one of the lines from it. It says, with every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but the powerful work of Jesus Christ through me. Amen? Let's pray.